can I have done to deserve that? <laughs> Thank you so much, but you've made me now so choked. <laughs> Hardly speak. Uh, but what I want to do now is I'd quite like to throw a spanner in the works. There has always been another term for feminism. And it was turned into a term of mockery, which is what tells us that people were very, very afraid of it. And that expression was women's liberation. I have never been an equality feminist. Never, ever. Not just because I don't think the present condition of men is anything I need to aspire to, <laughs> but because I don't get it. Equal to what? What are you talking about? Oh, I'm entitled to equal pay for work of equal value. When will you people realize you are talking nonsense? Work has no value except what I fight to demand for it. There's no intrinsic value in work. We need a labor movement. Some of you I can see are old enough to remember when we had a labor movement. And even more of you will know that Australia invented labor politics. It's one of the most extraordinary things this extraordinary country has ever done. But it was probably part of the bitter irony of history that it would be a labor party that worked out how to undo the labor movement. <laughs> by making Australian workers stakeholders in the exploitation of this country. Although it's a curious thing that whereas Mrs. Reinhardt has 20 billion, or is it a hundred billion dollars worth of something <laughs> that doesn't seem to be making her very happy, and can't get her a decent haircut. <laughs> Australian workers are watching their superannuation funds gradually trickle away. I don't know how you do that. I think it's called an economic miracle. <laughs> but I want to talk to you about equality because it is clear to me that if you want to be equal, you must undertake the duties, responsibilities, and you must qualify for the privileges of citizens in general. Therefore, it, if equality is your goal, then you must clamor for eligibility to join the military. Now, some of you will know this week that we found out how members of the elite Royal Australian Regiment, regard women. I won't bore you with their stupid jejun jokes, and we know why men make jokes like that, to excite each other. 
because to be completely outrageous and offensive is kudos. People think you're a very amusing chap. <laughs> but there were some bits that made me feel so faint and sick. The male voiceover, if you remember, I think it was a Four Corners program. If you're on ops and get rubbish, who carries the tampon and the sanitary napkins bag about women in the military? You remember the photographs that were uploaded to their blog site, their website. Photographs of young women with extraordinarily long legs, all the things they're supposed to have. Don't think beauty is any kind of a defense. And there they were, on the ground, surrounded by rubbish. You remember the girl lying on her back with her legs apart. She'd done it all. Her thighs were the size of my wrist. She had a perfect Brazilian. And there they had photographed her, out cold, stupefied, drunk. And this was the image they wanted on their website. What do we say about them? What is their problem? Now, I don't know about you, but I find the casual expression of revulsion and loathing for women in our culture deeply depressing. I can't say it's shocking, because it's not new. This is a page from my local free um, magazine that applies to us residents of Springbrook National Park area, of which my rainforest in southeast Queensland is a part. And on page two, they've got something called funnies, which have been stolen, as is normal in the Australian press, from some <laughs> American publication. <laughs> and it goes like this. A man on his Harley was riding along a California beach when suddenly the sky clouded above his head and in a booming voice, God said, because you have tried to be faithful to me in all ways, I will grant you one wish. The biker pulled over and said, uh, build a bridge to Hawaii so I can ride over any time I want. God replied, your request is materialistic. Think of the enormous challenges for that kind of undertaking, the supports required for reaching the bottom of the Pacific, and the concrete and steel that it would take. I can do it, but it's hard for me to justify your desire for worldly things. Take a little more time and think of something that could possibly help mankind. Mankind. The biker thought about it for a long time, which is not in itself surprising. Finally, he said, God, I wish that I and all men could understand women. I want to know how she feels inside, what she's thinking when she gives me the silent treatment, why she cries, and what she means when she says nothing's wrong, why she snaps and complains when I try to help, and how I can make a woman truly happy. God replied, you want two lanes or four on that bridge? <laughs> now, you're laughing, aren't you? But what underlies it is a, is a refusal to understand women. It's an assumption that women are irrational, 
that they are not to be dealt with. I mean, we've had, you know, men are from Mars and women are from Venus and all of that, and we, we are used to being ignored and not understood. Nagging is simply complaining that no one is listening to. And yet the amount of energy that has gone into presenting that caricature of male-female relations frightens me. But I'm also astonished that my neighbors would stick that in a little local rag that advertises local businesses thinking that it was worth inclusion. Now, if we think about the Royal Australia Regiment and the trouble it's got itself into, we realize that we've heard it all before. You will remember the Skype sex scandal when a woman, Air Force cadet, had sex with a male comrade who filmed it on a webcam and relayed the video to five friends in a nearby room. Six mates, sorry. This young woman didn't even realize that this had happened until she read about it in the press when she learned that these guys were going to be brought up on minor charges, she called the press. In fact, I think she called Channel 10. But what happened after the story ran is that one of her superiors in the Air Force suggested she apologize to her fellow students for bringing the division into disrepute by going to the media. According to The Australian, not a source I use often, <laughs> the apology was called off before it started because one cadet in the audience to whom she was supposed to apologise called out, name and shame the dirty slut. Other cadets took up the cry yelling, do it, do it, do it. The officer cancelled her address fearing that the cadet's mood was too volatile. She then took leave while her male colleagues remained at the Air Force Academy. Now, the part of that that gets me is that her medical records were made public. That was in order to show that she was on the contraceptive pill, which, as you now know, is evidence of inordinate sexual activity. To take a contraceptive is to be defined as a nymphomaniac. Uh, the American um, candidate has now made that absolutely obvious. But the bit that gets me more than anything is why was she taking the pill? She took the pill for the same reason that female athletes take a contraceptive pill, so that she could avoid the rigors of her cycle because her training was considered to be too rigorous for someone who was going through the stresses and the strains of a normal cycle. In other words, she had to chemically castrate herself in order to qualify as an Air Force cadet, at least in somebody's estimation. How can this be equality? The men don't have to take steroids to train. Why is the training for the Air Force so incredibly strenuous. It's not as if she's going to have to carry the damn plane. <laughs> so where are we here? If equality is your discourse, then you want women in the military. Julia Gillard helped to fast-track the opening up of combat roles to women. 
at this, exactly the same time that this particular croc hit the fan. Now, according to Australia's top military position, uh, official, 93% of positions are currently open to women. However, comeback roles in infantry, artillery, engineering, airfield defence and special operations units, as well as workers' clearance divers in the Navy, are still out of bounds. Well, hang on a minute. Isn't that institutionalising inequality in the military? There's only one way to have a career in the military, and that is to do weapons training, to qualify, and to face combat in the front line. Anything else means that everybody else will be promoted before you, which is the experience of many women in the military. Now, I could bore you for hours talking about how women suffer in the military. There's plenty of evidence. There are people, the equality defenders would say, that what we really need is more women in the military. There just aren't enough of them. They say we need to get to critical mass. Criticised mass would be more like it. Now, where women are in frontline combat, and where there are more of them, no one's terribly sure that statistics are all over the place, but in the American military, between 14% and 20% of the military are female. Now, according to their own statistics, 30% of military women are raped while serving. 71% are sexually assaulted and 90% are sexually harassed. Now, what you can see in the Royal Australia Regiment website is something that I have always said, which is that an army, a 21st century army, is no place for a rational human being. <laughs> One of the things... <laughs> in order to kill on the scale that you can kill in modern warfare, soldiers have got to get the impression that the enemy is not human. We are not surprised to find that the Royal Australia Regiment has nothing but contempt for Muslims, which doesn't augur well for any involvement they might have in Afghanistan. You remember the joke, what do you see if you see a musso limping across your backyard? And the answer is reload. They're proud of this, they think it's funny. It's not going to do us any good, and it's not going to solve the problem we have in confronting the pressure that Islamic systems are placing upon our cherished way of life. 125 American women have died in frontline combat in the American military. But when it comes to what, how they are actually treated in acti on active service, the evidence is horrifying. One young woman reported, everybody's supposed to have a battle buddy in the army and females are supposed to have one to go with them to the latrines or to the showers. That's so you don't get raped by one of the men on your own side. But because I was the only female there, I didn't have a battle buddy. 
My battle buddy was my gun and my knife. She was harassed by and, and attacked by her sergeant. She reported him. She was moved to another base. He was promoted. She wasn't promoted for six months, and so it went on. She was less scared. She went to another unit where she was one of 17 women, but they weren't even close to each other. I was less scared of the mortar rounds that came in every day than I was of the men who shared my food. I would never drink late in the day, even though it was so hot, because the Porter Johns were so far away, it was dangerous. So I'd go for 16 hours in 140 degree heat and not drink. I just ate Skittles to keep my mouth from being too dry. I collapsed from dehydration so often, I have IV tracks from all the times they had to dehydrate me. She doesn't point out that, in fact, two women in Iraq died of dehydration because they wouldn't drink after lunchtime, because they couldn't make the trip to the latrine. Now, you may think, hey, this could have been dealt with. Surely, this could have been dealt with. The fact is, it wasn't. So, our equality discourse doesn't hold too much water. We haven't been able to establish equality anywhere. Women now have the right, in theory, to enter into any field of human endeavor. But what they discover when they get there is very often that it's too hard. Even in our hallowed legal profession, women who qualify and move into chambers find that they are subject to the most ludicrous kinds of sexist oppression. Equality was always not worth pursuing, a fundamentally conservative aim and also a delusion. But the difficulty is when you come to explaining that making women enter roles that have been developed over hundreds of years for men to fulfill and make them take steroids and squeeze themselves to fit into these contours is itself oppressive. As an old-fashioned feminist, I've been called all kinds of names. If I say that women are not the same as men and treating them the same is actually a license to persecute and oppress, I'll be told I'm an essentialist. It's about as bad as it gets. <laughs> These are people wanting me to believe that the menstrual um, cycle is a cultural imposition. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> if it had been, we could have got rid of it. And God knows we tried. But now I want you to consider the way Western feminism is playing in the rest of the world. I went to Iran in 1972. I went as a guest of the Women's Organization of Iran. The president was Princess Ashraf, the Shah's twin sister. The actual person who did the work was Mahnaz Afghami, who is still a feminist activist, but who has lived in exile ever since the revolution. What I discovered, of course, in Iran was what I call quizzling feminism. After the CIA overthrew Mossadegh, 
who nationalised the oil industry and replaced the Shah of Persia on the throne. The Shah, in order to please his masters, brought in compulsory feminism of a kind. The veil was outlawed. Women who came out of their houses wearing chador were likely to have it torn from them in the street. Women whose bodies had never been seen by people outside their immediate family circle. What was the result? For a whole generation of Iranian women, they never left the house again. This is what happens when you forcibly liberate people, when you decide what is in their best interest. It was a terrible business, but it was going to get worse. When I was in Iran in 72, I met extraordinary young women wearing the full old-fashioned grey woolen chador, like a tent, this amazing sort of walking house. And they were Islamic Marxists. And I said to them, why are you wearing chador? And they said, because it's the only way we can signal our opposition to American domination of our country and the illegal rule of the Shah. And this is the beginning of a process which we are now seeing developing and unfolding all over the Islamic world. And for reasons that I don't understand, we're congratulating ourselves. We're thinking that somehow these people will end up on our side. That's a very risky supposition. In 1994, a young woman in Iran was shot dead for wearing lipstick. In reaction, a woman called Homa Darabi burnt herself alive. When we're talking about feminism or women's liberation in these countries, we're talking about something serious. We're talking about life and death. We're not talking about whether we can have a seat on the board of General Motors. That's not the issue. The issue is not even lifestyle. The issue is survival. Now, some of you will have heard of the One Million Signatures campaign to end discrimination against women. And you may know how that connects to the Green campaign in Iran to replace the uh, reactionary rule of the mullahs with a more modern post-enlightenment regime. What you don't know is whether they have any hope at all. Badare Hedayat is in prison. She was sentenced in 2010 to nine and a half years for activities that were considered seditious. Shirin Ebadi, Nobel Prize winner in 2006, is now in exile. It's a tough call when someone who belongs to a culture so distinguished, so ancient, has got to abandon it and watch from a distance and realize that she is having to extend at another level the hegemony of the United States, the power the United States has over modernizing opinion in her own country. We're at a serious juncture in history. 
And the thing that breaks my heart is that there is nothing we can do, nothing Western feminists can do to help or protect the women who are fighting for the lives of women behind what we used to sometimes call the urine curtain, behind the walls of Islam. Why can't we do anything? Well, think about it. We belong to a culture that is the most intrusive of any in the history of the world. The capitalist marketing machine extends into every hovel in the developing world. There is nothing comparable in traditional culture. And there is nothing that people can do to protect their culture and their intrinsic value system from the impact of American marketing. You realize the power it has when you realize that people will save up for a week to buy a bottle of Coca-Cola. How have we done this? We've done it the way we do everything, with bells and mirrors and lights and noise, with a cultural machine of an impact that has been unthinkable before our own time. It is battering us into insensitivity. Imagine what it's doing to these cultures. Why have we no standing? Why have we no standing with these people? Because our culture is principally visible all around the world and probably from outer space as a generator of pornography. Out there in cyberspace, there's an enormous cloud of pornography. It outstrips everything else we do. It is all our other cultural activity rolled into one. Even in my bed at home, when I turn on my TV in the morning to check the news, I'll get a brown sign that says, hey, three more adult channels have opened. Just press exit, which in my innocence I think means exit. But instead, what do I get? I get the hairless vagina and the two penises and the pumping and the grumping and the animal cries, and it's not even breakfast time. Now, if you live in a society which has defined itself by extreme limits on physical display and physical intimacy, partly because people didn't have any other way of retaining their integrity, if you live in that kind of a society where you don't even have a drawer in which to hide anything, your personal modesty is actually essential to your notion of your personality. To invade it, to actually attack a society which is very tense and very focused on sexual relationships with this kind of stuff is criminally irresponsible. I, however, have always deposed censorship. So what can I say? I didn't try to take back the night. I didn't see any point. Most people I knew were frightened to go out at night anyway. And that included women who were more likely to be killed at home than they were outside, who just bought the completely the wrong pup in that case. We cannot argue for moral superiority when, as far as anyone can tell, from the most obvious imagery, we have allowed utter degradation. Those of us who are feminists 
have watched with some concern as all the time we were trying to insist upon the essential dignity and humanity of women, what was actually conquering the world was lipstick. I hardly know how to feel about the young woman who lost her life because she wore lipstick. Believe me, it's not a great privilege to wear lipstick. It's not freedom to wear lipstick, especially if you belong to the generation that wouldn't dare leave the house without lipstick. Lipstick was our chador. And so are so many other things that we think all the time that we're freeing ourselves to be naked when in fact going about very scantily clad involves us in an immense amount of self-repression. We have to be careful how we sit, how we stand, how we bend over. I tell you what about the burqa. Nobody's bum looks big in a burqa. <laughs> So that those poor girls who are in those pictures uploaded to the Royal Australian Regiment site, had de they'd obeyed all the rules. They'd starved themselves. They'd depilated themselves. There wasn't a hair on them anywhere except their heads. And most of that was blonde. <laughs> they had limitless legs. They had boys' bottoms. And they were still despised and loathed. We get accused as feminists of being man-haters. Our problem is not that. Our problem is that we love men. We really love them. We want to be with them. We want to be close to them. What we can't handle is the fact that they don't love us. But it's typical. It's typical of the backward rhetoric that those of us who struggle against the poor esteem in which we're held by men will be told that we are the haters. It would be easy if that were the case, but it isn't. So where do we stand now? What can we say? How can we help? It's so crazy. For some of you may know that I keep getting into trouble because I will not condemn the veil. I won't condemn the veil because it's a thousand million different things to different women, and it's used in a thousand million different ways. I've been called all kinds of names because I won't even condemn female genital cutting in the culture of the Maghreb. What I say is, how the women of the Maghreb treat their genitals is their business. I'm more concerned about what we do in my society to girls' genitals. Did you know that the commonest intervention with newborns in the United States is the reduction of clitoris size in newborn girls? Did you know that? Do you think it's different? It might hurt less. I don't know that we know. I don't think newborn girls are very good at telling us. We are always cutting ourselves about. We, we consider it to be our duty. We're supposed to not let ourselves go. I'm supposed to have my wattle removed. <laughs> I can't pretend that I would love to have my wattle removed. I wish it would just go away. <laughs> I would rub it with any magic potion to make it go away, but I'm not going to have it cut off. But that's just because I don't much like cutting myself about. I have relatives who cut themselves about frequently. <laughs> and I love them, and I do my best to understand them. 
So I won't even say. What they say is, oh, why do women have their vaginas messed about with? Their labia minora, their clitorises, their whatever, in North Africa. And everyone says, oh, men make them. That itself is anti-feminist, you know. It assumes that whatever happens to women that we don't like or understand must be done to them by men. No, 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 no. Before we can do anything to help the women of the Islamic world and the women of the Arab Spring, we have to wait for them to tell us what their reality is. But we may not get the chance. The situation is grim. It should have been apparent from the very beginning that what happened in Iran when women helped overthrow the Shah only to then lose all the advantages they'd been granted under the quizzling rule of the Shah, only to have to go back to wearing the headscarf, to not being able to work in a public place, to not being able to move around freely, to not be able to leave the country without their husband's consent, which made them uh, vulnerable to blackmail by their husband's families and so on. I mean, the story is endless. The female eunuch was translated in Iran by one of the world's first women jurists, a wonderful woman called Mahnaz um, Af... Uh, Af mm, I'm sorry, I'm getting mixed up now. Man uh, Manuz And she translated it into Farsi and asked my permission, which of course I gave. And now I have to watch as feminists who do the sorts of things that I've always advocated, street theater, going into villages, talking to women about their lives, making little plays with the women, street theater, all of that, and all of them in desperate, desperate danger. But the danger extends. Some of you may have noticed that in Egypt, 40% of the people in Tahrir Square were women. And true enough, some were wearing niqab, some were wearing hijab, some were barefaced, and some had developed a mad kind of fashion which involves the piling up of the veil to make a great sort of dome. So they looked like extraordinary grave sculptures from a thousand years ago. There they all were in Tahrir Square. There they all were agitating, so full of hope, so full of belief. And then last 8th of March, International Women's Day, they had a little demonstration of their own. And they were attacked by their male comrades. They were told to go home and do the washing. Then they were grabbed by the security police and they were subject to vaginal uh, examination to see if they were virgins because if they weren't and they were in a public place, they were clearly prostitutes. And now we know that there are fewer women in the Egyptian parliament than there were before the Arab Spring. And we know that the women who had a reputation as activists are conspicuous by their absence. We also know that the Islamic Brotherhood won a sizable proportion of the vote, but they were joined by the Salafists, who, will make sure, who are going to demand the imposition of Sharia law. Is this what you expected when the Arab Spring began? But if you didn't expect it, why didn't you? Dictators don't allow 
alternative governments to develop. They don't allow an opposition. There, was a, there is only one opposition in all these countries, which is Islam, because it has the infrastructure, it has the, it has the schools, the madrasas, it has the mosques, it has a communication network. People on the street are simply people on the street. It's not where power is, it's not where power ever was. A virtual revolution is no revolution at all. If we go to Tunisia, it looked so hopeful in Tunisia because Tunisia, under probably French cultural dominance, was actually ahead of the United States, if you consider that to be a marker. <laughs> they had got used to having women highly educated. In fact, this had been a factor in the whole of the Arab Spring that so many people were overeducated for the job opportunities that existed, for the actual economic reality of Northern Africa. But the women now have got to come to terms with the fact that the government they now have is dominated by the Islamic Brotherhood. The Islamic Brotherhood has suggested complete segregation so that the women actually run, as it were, their own affairs and the men run their, their affairs as well. Now, this doesn't frighten me terribly as a feminist because I think it may be one way of doing it. It may be that segregation is good for us. Certainly one thing is clear to me, and it's something I think about a lot. We have got to understand how to join together. We've got to understand how to combine. If you think of your labor history, you'll realize how important that is. You don't get jumped on the way to the latrine if there are four of you. You can defend each other. Why, you might ask, are women in our society so often alone and so often vulnerable? I am always asked in England about ladettes. Do I consider myself responsible for the ladette phenomenon? <laughs> Didn't I say go out and fuck? Well, I didn't, actually. <laughs> what I said was, do what you want. And don't be ashamed of it and don't deny it. Make sure, though, that it's what you really do want. The way that this phenomenon works in England, and I suspect here too, but I don't know, is that most of the young women who go out on a Saturday night dressed to kill, in inverted commas, are drunk when they leave home. They buy, in England, they buy their alcohol in the supermarket where it's a loss leader and it's sold at less than cost. How about that? But when I say to the British government, can you pull the licenses from the supermarkets, they shit themselves. <laughs> no one is gonna go up against a supermarket, am I kidding? Who do you think really runs the show? So the women go out very scantily clad into the freezing British night for whatever adventure they can have. It is their way of having an adventure. The guys will go to the kind of pub where there'll be a brawl, where there'll be action, where there'll be excitement. The girls go wherever they think they might cop a babelicious boy, whether they get home in one piece or whether they end up being, their images being uploaded to the Royal Australian Academy um, 
Royal Australian Regiment website is just a matter of chance. This culture is the culture we have tried to export. And it is the culture that the Islamic world is resisting with all its power. One thing we have to remember is that behind all these figures in all these countries, there are women voting against westernization and modernization. If you like, voting against the values of the Enlightenment. We have produced this reaction by our absolute lack of concern for traditional values and traditional life. We thought of everything that was different to what we do as backward. We never looked at how these systems operate within their own economic reality. That economic reality is smashed in many ways and the Islamic world is trying to rebuild. Women are likely to pay a very high price for the modernization of the states of Northern Africa, the countries of the Arab Spring. We will give them Nobel Prizes, but be aware that every time we do that, we're saying these people represent our cultural values rather than theirs. We are also hanging a sign, a label around their necks that increases their vulnerability. The situation is desperate and we are going to have to learn new skills. We're going to have to learn to read the Quran. We're going to have to learn not to burn it, even if we think we're doing a cleanup. We're going to have to learn when we are guying an unfamiliar civilization and when we are actually imposing unbearable psychological stress on people who've been driven from pillar to post and back again. We haven't been able to learn it about our own Aboriginal people. We haven't been able to release any of the pressure that is grinding them. And we're getting it wrong with Islam as well. And you know something, we have no excuse. We are the information society. We have access to knowledge. Our ignorance is unforgivable. <laughs> oh, that wasn't very cheery, was it? The thing is, I wouldn't even bother to talk to you like that, except that I know you can take it. And I also know that you'll think about it. And you've got access to all kinds of information right here. It's time we began seeking it and listening. So now, have we got some questions? No questions? Oh, go on. <laughs> I could see lots of people nodding their heads. They're probably not used to nodding their heads terribly often when we have discussions like this. So I'd be very happy to deal with whatever you want to throw at me. I better go and sit in my oh, seat. No.
I was wondering what you thought about Ayaan Hirsi Ali, because I've heard her speak, and she is a product of Islam, and she speaks out about how dangerous it is. And see, this seems to be opposing to what you say about, let's wait until they give us, tell us what they need. And it sounds like few people are. Um, yes, I would agree with that. But the problem, well, part of the problem is that mostly when we have information from women from the culture, say, of North Africa, they've been educated in the West, and they're, most of them are already in this rather oblique relationship to their own culture. Um, and they tend to talk a language which makes more sense to us. Now, obviously, I regard Sharia law with terror. Um, and what I don't quite understand is why so many um, women in Islam will vote for it. Now, I could, you could argue that's because their husbands will beat them if they don't, and I won't deny that there's plenty of wife-beating going on, except that in many cases they don't know how they're voting. And these are women who really do not speak to the outside world, but they do speak to other women, and we want to join that dialogue. Now, it's happened to me lots of times that I've been in, say, I was in village India, and I was made to sit with the men and talk with the men while the women sat behind a curtain and giggled uh, because they couldn't believe that anybody's hands and feet were quite as big as mine. <laughs> um, and the men were from the panchayat. They spoke English. The women spoke only the local language. Um, it's when we begin to talk to people at that level that we begin to find out what their value system is. In the case of, of the Maghreb, of the Arab Spring, one of the really frightening things is that so many of the young, practically all of the young women who were on the streets were feminists, and they still are feminists, and they still believe they've got a chance. They still think that the parties in power will take on board their demands and will actually give them some room to manoeuvre. And as far as I can tell, they're wrong. And there's going to be the most terrible confrontations. Or else the women will simply uh, fall silent and creep away. But it's very hard for us. We have certain people we've listened to forever about life for Muslim women. Um, and they've been the people we've taken as experts. Many of them haven't lived in their native country for many years. We've got to get beyond that. It's too easy for us to nominate speakers who speak our language. We, apart from anything else, we help to alienate them and place them in danger. It's a, it's a truly dangerous situation. We'll go to number four. Uh, hi, Jermaine. Um, I completely relate to what you, what you were saying about how women and feminism should not be aspiring to be that which is male and how we're in a very patriarchal system at the moment which has been developed over hundreds of years to tailor for roles which are traditionally considered male-centric. Um, now, the way that society has moved on, we have men are being told to be more aggressive and those which have been mislabeled as feminine qualities are being told to be swept under the carpet. And personally, I feel that that's something that 
men need to be, uh, at a young age, need to be encouraged in these very things. So how, how do we approach this um, to, to assist men to become more human? Well, um, I could be really mean and say that's your problem. <laughs> but I won't be, because it's also our problem. I mean, it's one of the things I've noticed about mothers and sons, apart from noticing that mothers are in love with their sons. Um, until a boy is about 12, he's your best friend as his mother. He is your champion. He knows how you feel. He knows what makes you cry. And then all of a sudden, he starts being awkward, asks you to drop him at the end of the street and not at school, and doesn't want you to kiss him uh, because he's entered into the socialization of the male child. And that follows a single rule, which is the mother's milk must be got out of you. You must become a son of men and not a son of your mother. That's how masculinity is constructed. Now, you can opt out of that, but the form that that's likely to take, and I'll get myself into trouble for saying this, but I'll say it anyway, is probably that you'll decide that the whole masculine thing is just too much, and you're going to go into an alternative structure, which would be you're going to belong to the extraordinary galaxy of sexual behaviours that we call gay, for want of any other name, which are much more various than most people realise that the gay men in particular can invent a whole variety of lifestyles um, in a way that other um, minority sexual orientations can't. So it seems to me that that's part of what's going on because the masculinization of Australian society has got to the point now where it's kind of insane. I mean, if I read the sports pages of my newspaper, I've pr in Australia, I've practically got to learn a new language. And then I discover that they've had five minutes in a motel in Woolabakankia and they've done something disgusting to some poor chambermaid because it's making their male bond more binding or something. I mean, it, it has become crazy. The, the whole sports ethos is one thing, which is rather sweet when you consider how many of the Olympic athletes are going, in fact, to be gay. I think that's just fantastic. <laughs> wonderful contradiction. But the contouring of masculinity is something that society has put a lot of effort into. And it generally, I mean, it, may, it puts a stress upon the man to distance himself from his mother and distance himself from all the feelings that connected him to her, including his empathy for her. And his then inability to deal with the women who come into his life strikes me to stem from that same induced um, sociopathy. And we do have to do something about it, but don't ask me what. <laughs> we'll go up to here. Number one. Where are you, number yeah. one? Um, Jermaine, I got on the plane from Victoria to come to, hear, come to see you principally today and uh, saw in the Age newspaper that domestic violence in Victoria is actually at crisis point. It's worse it's ever been. 
So I appreciate your comment about feminism is life and death for some women and on our home ground. It's not just overseas, obviously. But the point to my question is uh, apparently Gene Sharp uh, and his amazing writings on civil disobedience impacted, not completely, but partially impacted the, the Arab Spring. So I'm very interested in... Uh, what hope is there for more civil disobedience in Australia so that the domestic violence doesn't reach the levels it is in Victoria? I just, I'm just interested in your comments on both. Well, the whole question of, of um, violence against women, I mean, even as I speak, 70 activists are climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and they're doing that to bring attention to the problem of violence against women and girls. And all I can think is, why are we drawing attention to the problem of violence against one sex? When we all know that children are treated with extreme violence, um, old people, elder abuse in this country and in England and everywhere else that I can find out about, elder abuse is common. People are starved, beaten, insulted, robbed, um, we don't know what percentage, it depends. We, we partly don't know what percentage because we haven't counted and no one's talking to anyone. Um, it always strikes me as odd that we single out a particular kind of domestic violence. Um, but it also strikes me as odd that we don't include the bashing of women as a hate crime. The bashing of racial minorities, the bashing of homosexuals, yeah, hate crime. Why do they think somebody beats a woman to death? I mean, she may be stupid enough to think it's because he loves her, but the rest of us know it's actually because he hates her. Um, and there's really woolly thinking about this. Um, I hope that the increased figures about violence, domestic violence, are because women are reporting it, and also because the police actually have sensible ways of recording it and that they also have strategies for dealing with it. But in the past, what's happened is, you know, uh, the police say, uh, if we're to proceed here, you have to leave the house. You and the children have got to go. Which means that the family the woman has suffered the torments of the damned to keep together is now doomed. And they're going to be worse off than they were before. Because what we apparently cannot do is take the violence and the loathing out of the person causing the disturbance, who is not always male. Everyone likes to say to me in England, oh, that women are responsible for as much domestic violence as men. And I have to say, yeah, but it's a slap versus being kicked downstairs and getting your neck broken. You know, what are you talking about? Um, one of the things we need to do, and I've said this for so long, I'm sick of the sound of it, is we have to break down the front door. It's only possible for the levels of domestic violence that we have to endure because people don't dare open that front door and ask what's going on. Because the houses we live in <laughs> are sentences of solitary confinement for the nuclear family, and the nuclear family is a poisonous institution. We can start by thinking about our architecture. 
especially as we've got so many single parents to look after. Uh, one of the things, for example, if you look at an inner city block that has houses built around facing out to the street, you've got a big space in the middle that's divided into separate back gardens. Is it too hard to think of breaking down those divisions and turning that into a common space, like would be the case in a Rajasthani village? But this is public space, and we can see what's going on, and a child who's being beaten or a woman who's being beaten can run into the space and ask for help. Um, we've got to start thinking about how we break down the neurotic architecture of the suburbs we talk about community. We don't have any community. <laughs> community okay, collectivity not okay. Um, I don't agree with that, and I don't entirely understand the difference. But I'm really, I want to see a change now. And there are all kinds of ways we can do it. But the sad thing is, we've done it before. They built cooperative housing for unwed mothers in Vienna in 1910, and it didn't work there. The nearest thing I've seen is young mums in uh, a Welsh housing development who were living uh, together as a community and the men kind of rotated around the outside and gave themselves uh, protection duties, which they quite liked. They quite <laughs> liked the idea that all the women and children are in there and we're outside and no one's going to give them any trouble. As they were the ones who would have given them any trouble, it worked <laughs> tremendously well. We've got time for just one more question, so we'll make it round to microphone number two. Um, happy Mardi Gras. Um, oh. I just wanted to <laughs> I, it's not really a question, it's more kind of a statement, and I just want to preface this by saying that I'm very tired. Hello. Hi. Hi. I'm very tired. Um, can we try, and get, can we try and get a question, please? Is that because you've been dancing all night? Yeah, yeah, I have been. Well, remember, a question's supposed to be two sentences, so go for your life. <laughs> Okay. Um, I believe when you said that you turn your TV on and you're confronted by images of pornography, you said hairless vaginas, and I just wanted to say I think you meant hairless vulvas. <laughs> Sorry. So should we take that as a comment? And we might finish with a question from number four. Yeah, but the, the hairlessness is a bit important because now young women think that if they have any pubic hair, it's be, uh, the boys will call them dirty because the boys have all been masturbating over those same hairless vulvas. <laughs> Jermaine, number yeah. four. Oh. Sorry, number four over here. Yeah. I don't know how closely you've been following uh, Australian politics in, in recent times, but the two most senior females in federal politics are Julie Bishop, the deputy leader of the opposition, and of course the prime minister. And there's been a lot of comment that what's going on between them is possibly bordering on the personal. And Julie Bishop, when asked yesterday on Sky News um, how she felt about the Prime Minister and whether or not it had become personal between them, quoted Madeleine Albright and said that there is a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. And I'm wondering if you support that idea or whether the fact that they're women is the reason why that people focus on their relationship or non-relationship. <clears throat> I must say, I was a bit startled when Julia said the other day, well, he should have no trouble wiping the floor with her. I thought, <laughs> Julia? 
We don't expect that from you, especially as the woman's standing there and she's talking about her in the third person as if she was a teenager. I mean, um, there's no earthly reason for Julie Bishop to be nice about Julia Gillard or vice versa. They can be as nasty about each other, in my view, as they like. Um, at least they don't do what some of our male politicians have been known to do, which is to throw the odd punch in the House of Representatives. Um, the whole point about Australian politics, it seems to me, is that there really are no ideological issues. Both parties... <laughs> Both parties are recycling the same stuff, and Julia... Gillard's situation is made more difficult because she's uh, the head of a minority government. So every single policy issue has got to be negotiated with the independents and the Greens, which means that almost everything she does is blunted, is she cannot actually make clean-cut policy. But that, in a way, is a relief because the only thing that makes life under what passes for democracy in our society is feasible is the the gaps and the inconsistencies and the inadequacies of our governments that at least give us a bit of wriggle room. Um, so we do occasionally get to park on a double yellow line uh, without being hung, drawn and quartered. Um, so uh, it's unedifying, uh, but it's not as unedifying as some of the major policy failures, but I think they're failures that would be visible on both sides of the house. I don't actually think that Tony Abbott is going to be less embarrassing. <laughs> it's going to be very hard for me, living in Britain, if Abbott is leading the party when it wins the next election, <laughs> because I'm constantly going to be asked if he's like that because he's Australian. <laughs> and I'm going to find it very hard to answer, because I can't imagine him coming from anywhere else. <laughs> Well, <laughs> it's perhaps a tragic sign of the times that we've concluded our conversation on the embarrassment index in relation to, to Tony Abbott and or Julia Gillard. But it's been wonderful to traverse the heights of, um, to, to, to look at the, the feminism in a global context and to hear from Jermaine Greer. Thank you very much to her. Thank you to you.